family. I do not want you to expect anything less of me than Jesus expects of me. And I certainly don't want to expect anything less of you than what Jesus expects of you. And so we need to make that a priority. And so third, I absolutely believe that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he began establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And it's our responsibility to make this place as much like heaven as we possibly can, as possible. And we're in a physical, literal, spiritual war. And the battle, the battle for our hearts is real and there's everything that's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And we need to join Jesus in the fight for our hearts and join Jesus in trying to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And why am I saying these things? I'm saying these things because we live in a current culture where, where, where social and political climate is just, it's not fun. And, and all of a sudden, if you believe certain things or you have certain perspectives or, or certain opinions, we get labeled and branded and tagged and characterized and, and categorized into one extreme or the other extreme. Our current culture doesn't allow us to live in the tension of two opposing opinions or two opposing perspectives, or the, our current culture doesn't allow us to agree on both. For example, Right now, if I love my black son, then, then I'm required to hate my police officer friends and family. Or if I love and adore and pray for my police officer friends and family, then I must hate my black son. Uh, why can't we have both of these perspectives at the same time? Why are we forced into opposing views and we get labeled and tagged and, and all of a sudden branded and characterized and categorized into certain categories? Jesus lived in these tensions perfectly and beautifully, and often he lived in the tensions that were opposing. For example, I love this moment, Mark chapter 12, when, when the Pharisees are trying to trap him because they want to kill him. Mark, Mark chapter 12, we're told about this moment where Jesus lived in the tension beautifully and perfectly. This is what it says. And I, it's not on your screen, so you can look at it later. Jot it down. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him one, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. What, what a what a reputation. It says this, for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Yeah, they're almost buttering him up, but this is also speaking of who Jesus is. And so here's their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, this is what Jesus said to them, why do you put me to the test? He says, bring me a denarius. In other words, bring me a coin and let me look at it. And so they brought him a denarius, denarii, and he's got it, and he looks at it, and he says this, whose likeness and inscription is in this? In other words, whose face is engraved in this coin? Whose name is engraved in this coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. And so Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. In other words, pay your taxes, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and, and do give to God what, what you give to God. And I love this moment because verse 17 says, and they marveled at Jesus. Because somehow Jesus was able to live perfectly and beautifully in the tension of these two opposing views. And that's where I want to land. I think that Jesus offers another option, that we don't have to be pigeonholed to one side or another, that Jesus offers us the ability to be different, that we don't have to be forced into the conversation. And Acts 10 is one of the most important chapters, I think, in the entire book of Acts. This chapter opens up Christianity to non-Jews. Beyond Jerusalem and Judea actually begins going into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, and basically, Christianity is open to non-Jews, specifically to the Gentiles. And over the next few weeks, we're going to sit in Acts chapter 10. And I want us to be challenged. I want our perspectives, I want our prejudices, and I want our Christian lives, the way that we understand how we should live them, to be challenged. I, and I want you to remember fundamentally, foundation, most importantly, that I am fighting for our hearts and I am pointing us toward Jesus and I am expecting out of us what Jesus expects out of us and I am committed to building and to advancing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what I know. When God wants to do His work, 
He calls a person. He calls a person. He empowers that person with his Holy Spirit. And then he enables him to speak about all the things that Jesus had done, is doing, and will do. And isn't that the whole point? The Acts chapter 1, in the first chapter of Acts, we get this idea that, that this is why Luke is writing. Because he's writing to tell about everything about Jesus. Everything Jesus had done. And, and the movement Jesus is a part of now. And the things that Jesus will do. And how does God accomplish getting that message out? He empowers us. He chooses a man or a woman of God to speak on his behalf once they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is what we've seen in the early church so far, and it is the pattern for which God gets his work accomplished even today. God is still at work today in us and through us, in me and through me and in and through you. And so we're going to dig into Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1, is what it says. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. And the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. In just a short few verses, we find out a lot about this man, who we don't know of anything about him before now, but his name is Cornelius. We know he is a centurion, meaning that he's responsible for a hundred men. This is where we get the word century, centurion. All right, And so he's a centurion in what's considered uh, the Italian cohort or the Italian guard. And so he's a centurion leading soldiers, a Roman cohort of soldiers, which means he is the worst of the enemy. To the Jew, he's the worst of the worst. He's known for his oppression. He's known for his violence. He's known for the Jewish exile where, where Jews were run out of their homeland. Centurions were not liked. And so it's interesting to me that Luke has to always give us some clarity and paint centurions in good light. If you know the Gospel of Luke and you know the book of Acts written also by Luke, he's always trying to give us a different perspective of the centurions. For example, in Luke chapter 7, we get this moment where a centurion sends his servants to get Jesus because he has a servant who is on their deathbed. And he wants Jesus because he heard that Jesus can heal people. And so he sends for Jesus, and Jesus uh, approaches the house, but the centurion meets him and says, listen, they're almost dead, and and I'm unworthy to have you in my home anyway. But Jesus, he says, hold on, hold on. And this is what Jesus says about that centurion. He says, in all of Israel, I've seen nobody with this kind of faith. And so Luke often has to paint for us centurions in a positive light because centurions were the enemy. They were the hated. They were the despised. They were the ones who were unliked the most. We also know some other things about Cornelius. He was practically a Jew. He did everything that was required of the Jews except for one thing. He was a God-fearing Gentile who was almost a Jew without circumcision. And more importantly, he's unaware of Jesus. Cornelius was educated, he was devout, he was honest, he was generous, he was sincere, and he was lost. He didn't know who Jesus was. And so we know from the text, verse 4, that he's praying about something. And so God sends an angel to appear before him to tell him, listen, God has heard your prayers. He's aware that he's been praying about something and God is going to give him an answer. Let's continue in verse 5. It says this, and now send men to Joppa. And bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. I always have to pause right here when I'm reading this text, because I often have to ask myself this question. Why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius what God's message was? Why in the world did he have to go get Peter to communicate? The angel was already there. The angel already appeared. Why wasn't the angel able to give the message to Cornelius? And the answer is simple, really. Angels were not granted permission. They weren't granted the ministry of sharing the gospel of Jesus with sinners. 
This is what makes the Great Commission go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing and teaching people to obey, even more pertinent to me and you, because it is God's only plan that as human beings, we would carry the gospel, we would share the message, that we would go, which was implied, and make disciples. How? By baptizing them and teaching them to obey Jesus, to obey God. And so I know that this is the the, the focal point of the entire ministry because God chooses other people to bless us. And God chooses other people to encourage us. And God chooses other people to teach us. And in this particular situation, we have an educated Roman soldier who fears God, who will be taught by an uneducated fisherman who walked with Jesus for three years. And I think what God is doing here is he's teaching us something. He's given us a very deep meaning, and we can't miss the truth, that is consistent with Scripture. That if we only surround ourselves with people who act like us, who are like us, who talk like us, who learn like us, who look like us, who vote like us, who live like us, then we are going to miss out on what God might have for us. We have to understand that this is consistent. In this moment, God is using an unlikely Jewish fisherman, uneducated man who walked with Jesus to communicate a message to a powerful Roman centurion. Educated, devout, consistent. Cornelius then sends two soldiers, or sorry, two servants and a soldier to get a Jew. And and I think this is a joke in the making, right? What do you get? What do you get? when you send two servants and a soldier to get a Jew. Ha <laughs> ha, you get Peter, right? Now, on top of that, you get, you get Joppa. Joppa is this little tidbit of information that Luke likes to give us. Joppa, the last time we really know much about Joppa was way back in the book of Jonah. And if you remember, Jonah went to Joppa to get on a boat to escape the very mission that God had for Jonah. And so I'm here looking at this thinking, God is rewriting history. He's rewriting what's going to happen. He goes to Joppa to get Peter, and Peter's going to go on a mission that he doesn't really feel compelled to go on. Will Peter run, or will Peter go? We go on in Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they, the two servants and the soldier, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. The sixth hour is about noon. And so it says, and he began, he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great white sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And traditionally, this is what I want you to know, a Jew, a good Jew, would typically eat two meals a day. The first meal would be at 10 o'clock, around 10 o'clock in the morning, and the second meal would be around 6 or 7 at night. And so here it is, it's noon, it's the hour of prayer, Peter goes to the roof, he begins to pray, he falls asleep, he has a dream that God gives him about this sheet that has all these animals and birds and reptiles on it. And so, so we can often, how many of you have ever fallen asleep while you were, were praying? And so all of a sudden, he's on the roof. He's hungry because he hasn't had his normal meal. He's two two hours late for his normal meal. He's hungry. He has this dream, and this dream is about food. Kill and eat, kill and eat. And this would not have been possible for Peter. Because in Genesis chapter 7, remember Noah's ark? God, God kind of separates, he divides animals into three categories. The first category is the clean animals. The second category is the unclean animals. The third category is kind of like the, the, uh, the birds and all the creepy things, right? The, the crawly things. And, and so Peter was a good Jew, which means that he obeyed all the good Jew laws and all the good Jew commands. But what God's doing here is he's ultimately challenging Peter's worldview, Peter's perspective and how he sees the world. And so he's challenging his worldview. It's very difficult to put on the table the things that we have believed, the things that we are sold on as if they were absolutely true, but they're actually not. No matter where we are from and no matter how we've grown up, we all pick up stuff 
We pick up baggage, we pick up beliefs, we pick up opinions, and we embrace these things as, as solid truth as we're growing up. And, and then we find they may not be actually godly at all. And they're not from Jesus. As a matter of fact, some of this baggage and some of this stuff that we pick up, some of these perspectives and, and points of view and some of these opinions that we pick up are actually anti-Jesus. And the gospel wants to challenge these things. And so Peter, he struggles with the dream. Ultimately, he resists God because he had his own conclusions. He had his own set of thoughts and his own set of beliefs. As a matter of fact, look what Peter says in Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 10, verse 14. Peter said, by no means, Lord. I want you to notice that. This is, this is serious. He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And I look at this and I think, what is going on here, Peter? God sends you a vision through a dream, a command through a dream. And you say, no, Lord? No, Lord? I'm like, Peter, haven't you learned the lesson when Jesus had to say to you, get behind me, Satan? I mean, Peter, didn't you learn when Jesus rebuked you for cutting off the soldier's ear at his arrest? Peter, didn't you learn when you walked on water not to doubt, not to argue? Remember you sank? Or, or Peter, didn't you learn when Jesus rebuked you because you rebuked Jesus for washing your feet? Didn't you learn anything, Peter? Peter, didn't you learn something when you betrayed Jesus three times because you were intimidated by a junior high girl? Peter, didn't you learn anything at all when, when you had to be restored for your ministry and now you're going to say to the Lord, no, Lord? When we say no, Lord, we disqualify God from being our Lord. Let me say that again because it's so important for us to understand this and to get this in our head. When we say, no, Lord, we actually disqualify God from being our Lord. We disqualify God from being our Lord of our life when we, when we reject what he tells us to do. We worship God, Lord, thank you, Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, Lord, Lord, Lord. We worship our Lord, but then when our Lord instructs us to do something and we say, no, Lord, we disqualify him from being our Lord, what Peter said was counter to lordship. What Peter said when he said no didn't make God his Lord. One of the greatest challenges of faith is when we declare Lord with our lips and we reject what he says by not doing what he says. Sometimes we're guilty of this. We worship him as Lord, but then we tell him no when he asks us to do something. In other words, what God is telling Peter is don't you dare, don't you dare call something that I have made unclean. This is not a message for Peter alone. Although Peter has to get it right in his heart, he is supposed to receive this message so that he can go and share this message with Cornelius which ends up being the very message that Peter needed himself. With the dream and with Peter's response, you would assume that this was the first time Peter had ever heard this. This was the first time this was new news. Like, God, what are you doing? This is so confusing. I've lived my whole life as if this was the first time that Peter had ever heard it. But this is where grace and mercy have to come in because sometimes we have to be told again and again and again and again before we finally get it. I want to take us for the rest of our time to Mark chapter 7, where we get to see that this wasn't the first time that Peter heard it. In Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, it says this, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that were unwashed. In other words, Jesus, why are your disciples eating their lunch and not washing their hands first? And this is, the, this is what Mark gives us. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not 
walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? (laughs) He goes straight to the jugular. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me, whatever I would owe you, whatever I would give to you, like, like understand for me is Corbin, that is given to God. So you get nothing. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do are like this. See, what's happening here is the disciples were not breaking Mosaic law, the laws of Moses. They were breaking the Jewish traditions. This is easy to do. We hold these worldviews that we've picked up somewhere, the baggage and the stuff that we've picked up from our years of growing up, or we were taught things by people we love, and they were taught things by the people they loved, and it's just been passed down and passed down. There are perspectives and, and opinions that we hold tight on, that we really believe are, are, are important, and we hold these worldviews that we've picked up, and now, now we have certain practices that we actually believe everyone should practice. We have certain opinions that we actually think everybody else should actually think, and our preferences can often cross a line between preferences and becoming expectations for other people to follow. And so Jesus calls this hypocritical. Because our actions are external and do not come from the heart, which is actually far from God. That's what Jesus is dealing with. He's saying, listen, you can do all these things, but if your heart's not right, there's a problem. And our preferences come from traditions instead of God. And so Jesus argues that human preferences, that that human traditions, and even church rules are ineffective in dealing with the human heart with making the human heart right. And as a matter of fact, these traditions, these preferences, and these values that are imposed on other people can actually be a hindrance from people finding Jesus who can actually change the heart of a man. And so look look on in Mark chapter 7, verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. This is what he's getting at. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And so what Jesus is saying is the problem with a defiled heart is much deeper and it's much more serious than we can even think. The core problem of defilement, the core problem of a messed up heart is what is in the heart. But it's more than that. It's the things that actually come out of the heart. Not the things going into the person, but the things coming out of the person. And what's really interesting to me is in in Jewish culture, the heart was the center of everything. The heart was the center of one's being. We talked about this when we studied through the book of the Gospel of John, which includes the mind and the emotions and the will. The heart was the center. And so if the heart's messed up, what's going to come out of us through our hands and through our mouths is what defiles us. So he goes on and he makes a clear understanding in verse 17. And when he had entered the house and he left the people, his disciples, his disciples, including Peter, don't forget that, asked him about the parable. And Jesus said to them, Then are you without understanding also? Do you not see, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his his stomach and is expelled? And then we get this little parenthetical note from Mark that says, Thus he declared all foods clean. Maybe, maybe at best, this is a year before Maybe a couple of years before, Peter has this dream. And it's important to note that that Mark, in his gospel writing, he got most of his information from Peter's sermons. And so Jesus, he pulls his disciples into the house. He has a deeper conversation about the importance of a pure heart. And the purpose of clean and unclean food was actually just to create an awareness of God's holiness. And to make it known that, that our sin, what it will do to our relationship with God, is it will break our relationship with God. And so Jesus understand, understood 
and was trying to help his disciples understand that he would remove defilement from their hearts and a full relationship with God was absolutely possible and a reality through his own death and his own burial and his own resurrection because of Jesus The traditional laws and the ceremonial laws were now fulfilled. So Jesus clarified what mattered and what matters most is that there's sometimes some evil that comes from our hearts. That's what defiles us. And he gives us a list. That's what he says in Mark chapter 7, verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are the things that defile a person. In other words, Jesus is saying, I care very much about what's in our hearts. I care very much about what God is doing in us and through us. I care very much about the way that we deal with some of the challenges that exist. And so for us, I think we need to ask an important question before we can move in beyond in Acts chapter 10. And this is the question that I think we need to ask. Is the Bible, is the words of God, Scripture, sufficient for all matters of faith and practice? Let me ask it again. Is the Bible sufficient for all matters of all faith, uh, all matters of all practices? Is it sufficient enough? In other words, do we call something unclean or common? Or below? Who? Maybe that's a better question. Who? Who do we call unclean or common? Who is it that when we see that person or we think of that person and what they represent, we consider them common or unclean? Who do we see as somebody who is less than ourselves? Is it the person who votes different than me? Is it the person who has a different perspective than me? Is it the person who lives different than me? Is it the homeless person who I think should just get a job? Like who is it that I look at and I say they are less of a person than I am? And why do we hold these opinions? What have we believed in? What was taught to us? What did we hold on to through our growing up years that would give us this perspective that now needs to be challenged? Is the Bible sufficient enough for all of our matters of faith and practice? Or is it that we follow Fox News or CNN News and then we add a little Bible to it? Or is it the books that we read on sociology or psychology or philosophy? Or is it the books that we read about self-help and and all of a sudden these become the matter of how we determine the matters of faith and practice? Are, are, Are matters of faith and practice based on what I think is best? Are our matters of faith and practice determined by what's best for me so I can build my own little kingdom? And make it all about me? What stuff? What baggage? What beliefs? What opinions do you hold on to so tightly because they were taught to you by somebody you love and they were taught to them by somebody they love that go against the biblical principles of faith and practice? This is what I want you to understand. How we deal with one another, especially in our differences, is a matter of faith and practice. And how we deal with one another should absolutely be based on the sufficiency of what the Scriptures teach us. Nothing else, nothing less, nothing more. How we treat one another, especially when we have differences of opinions, differences of perspectives, differences of skin color, differences of, of socioeconomic status, different, all the differences that you can think of. How we treat one another is absolutely a matter of faith and practice. And the Bible should be sufficient enough for you and for me, for us, to determine how we practice our faith. Listen to some of the New Testament verses. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
bear one another's burdens as to fulfill the law of Christ. Finally, all of you have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. But if anyone who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And these are the words that we read in the New Testament. Are these words sufficient enough for us when it comes to matters of faith and practice? Are these words sufficient enough for us in how we should deal with people who are different than us? You see, compassion is all over the Scriptures. Compassion is treating everyone as if they matter. (laughs) What happens, though, is we hear about experiences, and it's either pride that speaks or grace. Pride says this, I've never experienced that, so you must be lying. That's never happened to me, so you're a liar. Where grace says, I've never experienced that, and I am so incredibly sorry that you have. Do you hear the difference? We're so prideful in our society right now. When when people share their stories, we're like, that can't happen. That's not true. That's a lie. That's pride. Grace says, listen, I've never had that experience. That's never happened to me. And I am so incredibly sorry that it has happened to you. Christians, we are living in a defining moment where the world, people are watching us. And they are listening to us. And they are deciding what they believe about God and the church based on how we decide to respond to people who are different than us. How we respond to the problems in our society. God does the work in Peter. Because the sin that lives in our individual hearts is absolutely revealed in how we treat one another, especially the people who are different than us through the work of our hands, through the words that we speak. This is hard, but it's what we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks as we journey through Acts chapter 10. This is what I believe. I believe that Jesus would absolutely die for everything He taught us, everything that He showed us, everything that He left us. He would die for the commands that He gave us to go into the world, to make disciples, to teach them to baptize them. I I believe Jesus would die for this because I believe that Jesus is not okay. He is absolutely not okay with us calling Him Lord and rejecting what He says. He is not okay with us calling Him Lord and treating people who are different than us any less than us. He is not okay with, with allowing evil thoughts and sexual immorality and adultery He's not okay with us being consumed with want and what I want, 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 want. He's not okay with lies. He's not okay with us having the attitude that we should have it my way. He's not okay with jealousy and discontentment and resentment and bitterness and slander and foolishness. He is not okay with us calling Him Lord and allowing certain things to come from our hands and our mouth. Jesus is fighting for our hearts, 100%, all of it. And Jesus will not settle for anything less than 100% of all of our hearts. So by declaring God as Lord, it means that I do what He asks me to do. When I call Him Lord, it means that I will obey Him. When I call Him Lord, it means that I will submit, which may mean that I have to lay some things down. It may mean that I have to take up my cross and lay down my entitlement, lay down my rights, lay down down all of these things, the pursuit of the latter and ungodly ways. Man, by declaring God as Lord, we submit. We submit, not when we like it, all the time. We submit when it rubs against our traditions and our perspectives and our opinions. We still submit. We're going to sing a song. 
And I would like for you just to take a few moments while we sing it and prepare for our prayer time and while we prepare for communion, that that you'd get the right heart and you'd be willing to say, Lord, you are Lord of heaven and earth. I am not. I submit to you and I will obey you and I will do what you ask me to do even when it rubs against me. Let's sing. take that song and that heart, that attitude, and let's go to God in prayer. I really would just encourage you, let's just uh, try and draw uh, ourselves in and focus in on God. Uh, Put away the distractions. That means you have to change a posture, and let's do that. God, it is a a blessing and it is an honor uh, to be able to uh, come before you, to speak with you, uh, to bring... um, our lives to you, our requests to you, to uh, speak with you about the work that you've been doing in our in our hearts today. And thanks for the privilege of being able to gather this morning, to be in your word, being challenged in the message today through Tom. As we come, God, it, uh, it has been such a week of distraction. God, it's been a week of, for some people, great fear and unknown. On the top of the last six months, God, uh, it has been easy to be distracted away from um, relationship with you, away from focus on you. It's been easy to, uh, man, be centered on what's going on around us and not see outside of ourselves. But God, uh, what, a, what a great challenge this morning, what a great reminder that God, you have called us to, to be your hands and your feet to the world uh, that, that we touch. So, God, I, my prayer today is that we could uh, take the very real distractions and the very real uh, concerns and fears, and we'd set them at your feet today. God, that we would trust that you would walk with us through them, that you would hold our hands, that you have not left us alone, that you would be there with us no matter what we face. God, so that we could focus on being salt and light, bringing the message of Jesus to the world that we touch. And help us to be that, to be the church to the world around us this week. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Every week of Mountain View, that power is what we celebrate and we give thanks for. That Jesus would have the power to forgive sin. That his death on the cross wasn't the end, but that the power resided in him to go to the other side of the grave, to resurrection, to ascend back to heaven, to prepare a place for us to come someday. So grab your supplies and, and we give thanks and we remember together that Jesus would give of his body on our behalf. So we say thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross on our behalf. We say thank you, Jesus, for giving your blood to cover our sin that we might be redeemed. God, I'm grateful. I'm at awe for your abundant love for us. Jesus, thank you for being our substitute, taking our place, that we might live with the hope of eternity. Help us to honor that well with our lives this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And what a great day it's been today, a great challenge. I hope the Holy Spirit has been evidently working in your heart and that you have been moved to take a step of life change. We want that to happen every week. Right now, we want everybody to take a particular step if you haven't done so. A step at Mountain View that we want everyone to take, whether you're new or you've been here a long time, is to participate in something we call Rooted. There's a virtual as well as a live opportunity for that. We'll talk about here on the video when we're done. We'll finish in worship. Check this out. At Mountain View, we want people to take intentional spiritual next steps. One of the first steps we want people to take is to go through Rooted. Rooted is a 10-week experience wherever you are in your life, no matter where you are spiritually in your walk with Christ. Discussions are held in small groups of 10 to 15 people. Together they explore what the Bible says about God, about Jesus, about the church, and about humanity. You will engage in experiences, share stories, and practice the rhythms for a healthy spiritual life. I invite you to take this next step beginning Sunday, September 20th. You can go to the website, mvcclive.com, and register there, or there will be a drop down in the live chat before you leave our worship experience today. See you in Rooted.
Children singing glory. 